This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au We're going to dive into Romans 3 this morning. I'm going to pray for us and join, ask you to join me as we come before God in his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you are perfect and holy and righteous and fair and just and that every act you have ever done has been good. And God, this morning we want to come before you and cling to your just character as we look at a world that is writhing in pain and suffering and grief at innocent men, women and children who have been slaughtered. We cry out to you this morning. Act in justice. And Father, we thank you that you did that decisively at the cross where you poured out your wrath and anger on Jesus that we would be set free, that your anger would be satisfied, that you would wash our sins clean. Father, may this good news define our lives, define our church, shape our world. God, we pray as you speak to us now by your word. We ask that you would convict us by your spirit, change us, shape us, make us more like Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen. Well, as I was preparing this message this week, uh, I was thinking about dedicating Levi and wanting him to know what the central core truths of the message of Jesus are all about. And uh, really, these verses are that. And so as I was preparing this week, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is what I want my son to know. This is what I want Levi to grow up understanding. And the same is true for Blaze and Banjo and Atticus and Noah. We want these young boys to grow up to be strong young men who understand what the good news of Jesus is all about. And Paul unpacks for us so beautifully these, uh, these words this morning about what the good news is. Some um, Bible scholars, theologians reckon that these, this sentence here, in fact, 321 to 26 is one giant unbroken pregnant sentence, just packed full of meaning. And they reckon that these, this sentence is the most important sentence ever penned in human history. The most important sentence ever penned in human history. And I've got like 23 and a half minutes to try and unpack and explain all of this rich theology here. I remember I first preached on this passage 19 years ago. Believe it or not, yes, um, that's true. 19 years ago, I first preached Romans chapter 3. And I remember I was, I was working through this passage and reading all the books and doing all my study and research. And I just didn't understand it. I, I couldn't understand verse 26. The words were just jumbling in my head. And so I decided to do what every 20-year-old preacher does when they hit a bit of a writer's block. I went for a skate on my parents' driveway. And so I'm skating on the driveway at Hull Road, West Penno, skating, surfing the, surfing the driveway on the road. And a friend of mine drives past and he pulls over. He says, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just trying to figure out Romans 3.26. I just can't get my head around it. And so we sat in his car. He pulled his Bible out. We unpacked this passage. And as I was kind of just verbalizing what I'd been reading, the words started coming out of my mouth. I was like, oh. I get it. It was like the clouds parted and the Shekinah glory of the Lord descended and angels appeared outside the car and they sang the chorus of hallelujah. I was like, I get it. I get Romans 3. It was like this epiphany, a theophany moment for me. And 
And my hope is that this truth catches my son Levi and Blaze and Banjo and Atticus and Noah this morning and indeed every person in this room in the same way, that we would get the richness of these verses. It's a bit like, um, you know when you drink undiluted cordial? You, you pick the glass up, you, you don't, didn't realize that the cordial hadn't been diluted. You put it in, you drink it, you're like, whoa, this is so sweet, it's so thick, it's so rich. And that's kind of what Romans three twenty-one to 31 is like. It is dense, thick, rich, undiluted theology, all packed in there. I'm not sure how it doesn't explode, but it's all just squished in there. And so we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to attempt to unpack that this morning, or at least what I've got in the time that we have. But by way of context, we need to go back to the last couple of messages that we heard preached over the last two weeks. Paul has been building a case against humanity. And chapter 3, verse 23 is almost his summary statement of everything he has said from 118 to 320. And he says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person. 118 to 320 has been a case against humanity. He has established that those who are outside of God's people, the Gentiles, the rebels, he calls, they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the moralizers, those who perhaps haven't been born of Jewish descent but want to submit themselves willingly to the law and seek to obey it, they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Jews themselves, God's very covenant people, the people that he set his affection upon, who have received the law, who have received the sign of the law, they too have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person who has ever walked the face of this planet has fallen short of God's expectation and standard. Paul has been building this case, and his point is to silence the world. Every court of appeal has been exhausted. Every comeback and excuse and argument has fallen down. And Paul has established a strong case. The verdict is in. We've all fallen. We've all fallen short. We've failed to live the lives that reflect the glory that God has intended us to reflect. We've failed to worship God and give him the honor that he deserves. And instead, we've chosen to worship things that he created. And Paul has been building this case. And if you've been with us over the last two weeks, they've been dark sermons. Like last week was heavy. And then we get to this moment in chapter 3, verse 21, and it's like, a break in the scenery. It goes from black to light, from darkness to day. And, and there is a defining, significant change in Paul's tone here when he gets to the words, but now. But now, could there be any more precious and contrasting words in all of Scripture? In fact, the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote 10 pages in his commentary on just those two words. But now, after drowning under multiple sets and waves of sin, after being pressed down under the fair but fierce judgment of God, finally we can come up and take a breath and let oxygen fill our lungs and breathe as Paul brings the good news. And he starts with those words, but now, have a look at 321. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith 
in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This theme, the righteousness of God, is Paul's favourite theme here in the first couple of chapters of Romans. It's the theme that he raised there at the, at the halfway point of chapter 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Why? Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed that we will be saved by faith. And so Paul start, he, he introduces us to this beautiful theme of the righteousness of God, of how God is going to make people right with him, that we can be all good in relationship with God again. And he takes us on a detour. Chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. Chapter 2, chapter 3, and then he comes to 321 and he brings us back to that theme of the righteousness of God. Again, the sentences are almost the same there in those two verses. It's kind of like if, you've, if you're familiar with comedy, if you watch comedy, you'll notice that comedians sometimes do this. They'll tell a couple of jokes on a theme, right? And, and you're like, oh yeah, I had those three jokes. They all had a common theme. I see what he did there. I see what she did. And then they tell 20 other jokes and then all of a sudden they come back and tell another joke and you're like, oh, they just took me on a journey and they've come all the way back and they did that with no notes. and It was so clever. Wow, that was amazing, right? And that's what Paul does here in these chapters. 118, he takes us on this journey of depression and darkness and sin and brokenness and then he brings us back to this theme of the righteousness of God, how our God is going to establish his kingdom and call people to himself and do that in a way that maintains his character. And so we're going to dig in on that this morning. Paul is introducing here God's new way of people being made right with God apart from human self-effort. Apart from human self-effort. You see, the reason that Paul has to spend so long building his case against humanity is because we have this deep inherent propensity for self-justification. We do it every day. Even in the small conversations. Like I remember having a conversation the other night with, with someone. Uh, I was at a, a, a lecture and I turned up late and the person who I was speaking to said, oh, I didn't see you here. And I, I was like, oh wow, I feel bad because... I wanted them to know that I was here. And so I had to make, justify why he hadn't seen me. And I was late. I was like, this is such an inconsequential thing. But here I am trying to justify myself. We do this in such subconscious ways. We're not even aware that we're doing it. We do this every time we bow to the fear of another person. We do this every time we try and talk ourselves up in our careers. We are inherently self-justifying people. And Paul says, I want to introduce to you a new way a way that is not connected to human self-effort. But this is what God has done. You see, God does not respond to what we do. We, in fact, respond to what God does and has done for us in Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning is I want to unpack the good news and take us to three locations and focus in on three words that Paul draws out of this text here. These are big words, they're meaty, deep theological words, and perhaps you might be familiar with some of them. We kind of still have these words rolling around in our modern vernacular, and some of, one of these words is actually just completely foreign to 2019. But we're going to dig in on these words. And so the three places we're going to go the first is we're going to the courtroom, and Paul's word there is justification. The second place we're going to is the marketplace, and Paul's word there is redemption. And the third place we're going to is the temple, and Paul's word there is a big, meaty word called propitiation. And so we're going to dive into those three locations and have a look at how Paul 
brings the good news. And finally, isn't it such a relief to get to the good news after all of those verses in Romans 1, 2, and 3? So here we go. Let's have a look at verse 22. Let's follow the logic that he's been working through here. For, for there is no distinction, Jew, Gentile, moralizer, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right, you ready? Uh, I hope this doesn't come across like a lecture. I hope it's more preached, but we'll see how we go. The first place we're going to is the courtroom. Any lawyers in the house this morning? Who are the lawyers here? You're all too ashamed to put your hands up, but it's okay. This is a safe place. You can admit to being a lawyer here. We're in your hood, all right? We're in the courtroom. Paul is here. The court's in session. The judge is there. And he says here in verse 24 that we have been justified, that's his word, justified by grace as a gift of God, by his generosity. Now, to be justified means to be declared verbally a declaration that you are right, that you are not guilty. And it's a decisive act. This is not a process. This is a moment where the judge says, this is the verdict on this person's sentence. They're just. They're justified. They're not guilty. It's a defining, decisive declaration of those who have been found in Christ. The opposite of it is condemnation, that the judge finds the defendant guilty of all of the charges that have been laid out before them. You know, on uh, the October, 3rd of October 1995, the world held its breath as the jury stood up to read the verdict for O.J. Simpson, who was tried on two counts of murder for his wife and his friend. And uh, it was one of the most, if not the most, televised trial in the history of humanity. The whole world paid attention to this trial. If you remember, he was caught on this, like, 30k an hour car chase driving a white Ford Bronco and like everyone's following like why did the police just take him out he's driving so slow and yet they interrupted the NBA final to live stream OJ Simpson driving down the freeway for a couple of hours so the world watched everyone was watching in fact they said that during the reading of the verdict the trading on the stock exchange dropped by 41 percent and that um Phone call traffic dropped by 58% and water use significantly dropped as well because no one wanted to go to the toilet because they were waiting in bated breath. Over 100 million people tuned in to the televised verdict of the reading. And the jury stood up and they read, on the count of murder, we find O.J. Simpson not guilty. Now, irrespective of what you think of all the conspiracy theories and whether the glove fit or not, or whether he was guilty and did it, or whether he did or what, irrespective of all of that, the judge and the jury stood up and proclaimed a declaration of innocence. And Paul is saying that's what God does for us. Guilty people who have been declared innocent. The judge stands, God, the judge of the world stands, and he reads, on the account of of those who have swapped the truth of God for a lie. On the count of those who have exchanged worship of the Creator for creation, I find those in Christ not guilty, innocent, pardoned, free. Now, if, I mean, all of the lawyers right here are like, hmm, I can see a problem. I've got a problem with this. 
And I think we ought to have a problem because we know from verses like Proverbs 17:15 that says, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, both of those two things the Lord finds detestable. Why? Because he's a God of justice. How can a fair, just, perfect, right God declare guilty people just and innocent? How does that work? Well, for now, Paul leaves us hanging and he'll answer that question for us in 326. But right now he wants us to grasp the weight of what the judge of the universe says. Not guilty. That's the first lens that, I, that Paul helps us view this good news through. The second place that Paul will take us to is the marketplace. It's the center of the business world. So any corporate workers here this morning, those of you who work in the city for big... No, uh, you're all lying. I, half of you work in the city. Come on, put your hand up. If you work in the city, corporate workers, here we are. Thank you for the three of you that put your hand up for that. We are in your hood, all right? This is downtown. This is CBD. This is big corporation. Probably not big corporation in the first century. But anyway, this is the marketplace where trade takes place and goods are sold and exchanged and swapped and all of the conversations of the city and the village take place in the the village center in the marketplace. And Paul is using a term here that is a business term, and the term is redemption. It's redemption. Now, this term here is um, often used in the uh, slave trade, a term that was used of setting slaves free. So whilst we've seen here that God declares the innocent just, sorry, the guilty just, he declares us just, and that comes as a free gift of God's grace, all of a sudden we see here that there is a cost. Someone has to pay something in order, in order for that declaration to take place. And the cost is the ransom, the redemption. So have a look back at verse 22. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It means to buy back, to purchase back, to pay a ransom. Now we saw in chapter 1 that every person has made an exchange. We've exchanged the glory of God and instead of worshipping him, we've worshipped created things and we've given ourselves over to idolatry and those things have trapped us and enslaved us. We're slaves spiritually. The very things that we look to as God in our life become the very things that trap us and push us down and enslave us. And Jesus here comes and he pays the ransom. He pays the redemption to set us free from that slavery. A number of years ago, I was working as a, a youth pastor in the western suburbs of Sydney, and we were running youth ministry in Mount Druitt, Rudy Hill. And a friend of mine by the name of Pete had purchased a really nice stereo, and he moved in to Rudy Hill to help minister to the kids in the west there and start this youth ministry. And one day, the house that he was living in got broken into, and his prized stereo was stolen. You know, back in the day, we didn't have these little Bluetooth, you know, tiny little things that created this incredible noise. We all had gigantic stereos, you know, with like 600 watts, bro. It was like just massive things that took up way too much room for what it needed to. And sometimes you had cassette decks and you could do high-speed dubbing on them, but that's another story. <laughs> Pete has his stereo stolen and he really actually genuinely loved this stereo and he thought to himself, you know what? I'm just going to go to Mount Druid Cash Converters and check if it's there. 
And so he goes to Mount Druitt Cash Converters, that classy establishment in Mount Druitt. And he, go, he walks in, and lo and behold, his stereo is there. And he says to the person at the counter, that's my stereo. And she says to him, prove it. He couldn't prove it. So Pete had to take out his wallet and pay a sum of money to purchase his own stereo back. And at that point, he owned his stereo twice. Right? He owned it for the first time when he bought it from the shop, and he owned it the second time when he had to buy it back from cash converters. That is redemption. That's what Jesus is doing. He is paying the penalty. He's paying the price, the sum of the ransom to set us free. Now that means that if you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that means that you are not a slave. You're not a slave anymore. You have been set free. But oh, how quickly the people of God run back to Egypt and prefer to shuffle in shackles than we do to walk in wholeness and freedom and the grace that God has given us. Jesus has paid the penalty. We have been set free. You are no longer in slavery. That's the second metaphor, that, uh, the second place that Paul will take us to to unpack this good news. The third place that we're going to is the temple. And the, the word that Paul will use is the word propitiation here. Have a look at verse 23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So here we are, we're in the temple. There's real no cultural equivalent to this church. does not connect itself to the abattoir at any point anymore. But that's kind of what it was like in the temple because animal sacrifice took place as people came and gathered for worship. And Paul uses a religious word. And it's not a religious word that is exclusive to the Jewish faith or Christianity. This is a word that was used across the board by pagan religions. And it means, a propitiation means a sacrificial offering, the offering of an animal to appease and to satisfy the God's wrath and anger. It's a bit like this, and this is a hypothetical because clearly I would never do something like this, but I want you to imagine that um, there's a family, beautiful family, husband and wife, three kids, kind of a bit like our family, but not, you know. Anyway, the night before, the wife says to the husband, I would like to get up tomorrow and wash my hair and blow dry it and get ready for the day. Husband, like, yeah, well, good, no worries. I can look after the kids in the morning. And then in the morning, he wakes up and he says, oh, I forgot to tell you I've got an early meeting that I need to leave early for. And so he leaves the house early and leaves his wife with a screaming baby and two toddlers that are bouncing off the walls and a dishwasher that has not been unstacked. And as he walks out the door, he feels the heat of the wrath baking the back of his neck, right? He goes to his meeting and he goes to his meeting. He comes back to his desk and he thinks, I've got to, got to do something about this morning's event. So he takes his phone out and he's like, ah. emoji, uh, kiss emoji, love heart emoji, send, blushing emoji, send, uh, I love you, send, I'm really sorry, send, ring the florist, send flowers, right? That process 
is propitiation, right? He is satisfying the wrath of his wife at completely letting her down and leaving her in the... That's what Paul is talking about here. Propitiation is the satisfying of the anger of God at sin. In the back of Paul's mind here is the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, we're told of this moment in the temple, that moment once a year, where the high priest, the the most senior person in Israel's worship, would bring a lamb and enter into the Holy of Holies, that place that was cordoned off and out of bounds for 364 days of the year. But on this one day, he would step into that place and he would slit the throat of a lamb and blood would be spilt and sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled in front of the people and then the sins would be paid for and washed clean and wiped away. That is propitiation. And Paul is saying, this is what Jesus has done for us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood was shed so that we might be forgiven as a substitute and a sacrifice. God is not apathetic towards our sin and indifferent. He does not lower his standards on our account. He does not sweep our sin under the carpet in the hopes that no one will notice it. He does not let us off the hook. He punishes our sin in the offering of Jesus and satisfies his holy and righteous anger. And the staggering thing about this good news is that God himself is the solution to the problem. God himself takes the initiative to step in and fix the mess that we've made in this world by our rejection of him. You see, at the cross, we see this beautiful meeting of both the judgment of God and the mercy of God, and they kiss at the cross of Jesus, where the judgment and wrath of God is poured out on Christ, but yet in that moment, the mercy and grace of God overflows to those who are in need. It means that if you have your faith in Jesus, God is not angry at you. I don't know what picture you have of God, but for me growing up, the picture was much like my deputy principal at school who would walk around the school and he never smiled because that was probably part of his job description. Do not smile. Uh, And he had a giant set of keys that hung off his belt and he would walk around the school. He was always angry. He was like so stoic. He made the Grinch look happy and I mean, that was my picture of what God was like. You know, he was out to get you and put you under tension. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we see this picture of a God who bends himself towards us, satisfies his anger, and then smiles upon us because of what Jesus has done. God is not angry. God's love for us don't rise or fall on the basis of our performance and our effort and our works but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, it remains steadfast. God does not respond to us. We, in fact, respond to God and what he has done. And so what does this mean as we look at these amazing, rich, beautiful concepts of the good news? It means a couple of things, really important things for us. And the first is that the reason why God has done this, Paul gives us two reasons why God acts in this way. The first is that in the past, God has looked over sins. And this solves the problem for that. 
The second is that God has justified the guilty. He has declared the guilty innocent. And this deals with that problem too. Have a look at verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness, his justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What, a, what an amazing thing. As you step back and you see this is not just about me and what Jesus does for me. This is cosmic. What Jesus has done here. He, every single sin that was committed from Adam and Eve until the time that Jesus died was covered by the blood of Jesus. The animal sacrificial system that we mentioned earlier, it worked a bit like afterpay works, right? You, know, you all know afterpay, right? And just so you know, I don't recommend you use afterpay. You know, you know, shop now, pay later. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. They just save up for a couple of weeks and buy it when you can afford it. Afterpay works like this. You walk to the shop, you purchase your item, but you don't pay for it. You get to take it home. You get to wear that item of clothing and feel amazing and then pay it off in small, four small payments in the following four months. That's how afterpay works, right? What Paul is saying here is that at the cross, every single sin committed from Adam until that day where Jesus was crucified was paid for then. Forgiveness, that was take home for every single person who brought their sacrifice to the temple. Forgiveness was take home at that point, but Jesus pays for it on the cross. The second thing that this does is it demonstrates God's fairness, his justice, that he has not compromised his character in declaring the, the guilty innocent. Because Jesus has paid the penalty for the sin that was incurred. And so God does not need to step outside of his fairness in order to lower his standards or let us off the hook. No, in fact, God deals with the sin. He deals with the brokenness. He deals with the mess. And then he is free to say of those who are guilty, you are innocent, you are free, you are justified. Without tarnishing his character one bit. There is this beautiful moment of seeing the justice and the mercy of God kiss at the cross. And what this means for us is that we can't brag. There's no bragging in the kingdom. There is no bragging in the good news. There's no strutting and boasting about what you have achieved in this because we did nothing. Look at what Paul says. What then, in verse 27, becomes of our boasting, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. Church, all of this is on offer for you. Justification that God would declare you innocent. Redemption that God would pay the price of your sin. Propitiation that the Father's anger would be satisfied. It is all available to you to be received by Faith is simply coming to God with empty hands saying, I can't fix this mess. I can't do anything about it. I simply cling to Jesus and what he has done. I believe in Jesus. I let go of my human self-effort to justify my existence. And I cling to what Christ has done for me. Our dream 
my dream for my son Levi, our hope for Blaze and Banjo and Noah and Atticus is that they would get that truth for themselves. And our hope and prayer is that you would too, wherever you are on your spiritual journey today, that you would know that you can stand justified, redeemed, that the Father's anger is turned away based on what Jesus has done for you.